this morning, uh, I want to talk to you about the biblical principles of civil government. The biblical principles of civil, civil, civil government. Uh, and I'm going to show you a short video clip here, just it's about two minutes, and then I will go into this. Uh, but in an effort to uh, make sure that we hopefully don't get censored, uh, this was loaned to us uh, via Liberty Pastors. Uh, all the media that we're going to be showing going forward is, is loaned to us and been agreed that we can show it through Liberty Pastors. Uh, and they have a website, and you can see it at the bottom, but I have to show this in order. Maybe Facebook won't censor us. So go ahead, Kevin. Karl Marx was the founder of communism. He believed that the ends justify the means. So lying, stealing, even murder was okay, but helped to accomplish the goal of establishing socialism and ultimately communism. Well, one lie being told today is that socialism is good for the people, but capitalism isn't. The truth is, all economies use capital. Capital, by definition, is the sum of goods or services needed for production. So that would include such things as a boat, if you happen to be a fisherman, or a tractor, if you were a farmer, or a factory, if you're in the manufacturing business. The difference is, who owns the capital? So socialist economies are capitalist economies, and free market economies are capitalist economies. But in a free market, private citizens only control the capital. We're free to buy and sell and do what we want when we want. We're free to work where we wish and do what we wish. But under socialism, the government owns everything, and that includes the people. The government tells you what to do, when to do it, where to live, what to eat. The government demands you work and then decides what they're willing to pay you. So what's the difference between socialism and a slave plantation? Absolutely nothing. Remember this, he who owns the tools makes the rules. When economic freedom is lost, political freedom perishes with it. Socialism is all about government control of everything. Socialism is evil. All right. So this morning, uh, I'm going to share with you uh, the principles of biblical, uh, the biblical principles of civil government. Uh, there are some scriptures in here, but I'm not going to take you to a specific scripture, but I am going to share this with you. So uh, any questions or comments when we get done, I can, I, can, I can do that for you. Our forefathers, the forefathers monument stands proudly on a hill in the middle of a residential neighborhood in Plymouth. The Grand Lady of Faith stands 81 feet in the air overlooking Plymouth Harbor. On, on the front, her dedicor, dedicor, dedicat, ooh, dedicatory plaque states this, National monuments to the forefathers erected by a grateful people in remembrance of their labors, sacrifices, and sufferings for the cause of civil and religious liberty. All we have known is liberty. In fact, we take what we have for granted. However, we are the only people in history that have enjoyed such liberty and don't realize that we are on the verge of losing it. The point we are repeated, we, that we will repeatedly see made by our founders and noted in this plaque in the connection between, is the connection between civil and religious liberty. They are twins who travel together. If you lose one, you lose them both. That is a major point in this, in the whole reason that that I am so dedicated to sharing this information. 
if you lose one, you lose them both. Our religious liberties are at stake. Our ability to go to church and worship God and freely, freely express what we stand for biblically is at stake. So remember that. John Witherspoon was one of the most influential men of the founding era. As the president of Princeton, 49 future congressmen were educated by Witherspoon. In addition, 28 future senators, 12 members of the Continental Congress, three future U.S. Supreme Court justices, one future vice president, and one future president, all trained in a solid biblical worldview by the Reverend John Witherspoon. Pretty amazing, isn't it? In fact, Reverend Witherspoon himself served in the Continental Congress and was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Reverend Witherspoon stated this, There is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty was preserved entire. Why would a Presbyterian preacher be speaking on such a topic? Remember the day in which he lived. Abortion was not an issue. It was unheard of. Homosexual marriage was not the issue of the day. It was unfathomable. The greatest issue and the greatest threat to Christianity in 1776 was civil and religious liberty. We know this to be true. True Christianity has always been persecuted. We can, we can go back all the way to the beginning, and it's, Christianity has always been persecuted. Beginning in Acts 3, we see the church persecuted by the Sanhedrin, then by the pagan Roman Empire, then by the Holy Roman Catholic Empire throughout the Dark Ages. Even around the world today, Christianity is being persecuted in the Muslim nations and communist nations around the world. Only in America and only for the last 200 years, Christianity has been able to live and, and people have been able to live and worship freely. Why? What has made America the exception? The goal of tyranny. Okay? In order to exercise complete control over a people, you must control the mind. Now I want you to think about as I go through this, what's going on around us today. Okay? Think about the things that, that, that we're being told through media and officials and, and, and the propaganda that they're they're feeding, trying to feed us, okay? Listen to these things closely and relate to what you know is going on. In order to exercise complete control over a people, you must control the mind. The body is easy to control if you first control the belief system of that body. That is why in a totalitarian societies, the government must control education and information. There can also be no freedom or conscience as there can be no higher authority to appeal to than the government. The government must become the absolute. Consequently, in a tyranny, you either have an atheistic communism as once existed in the Soviet Union and currently exists in communist China where there is no God. Consequently, the government becomes God by default. It is the role of government to establish what is right and what is wrong. It is up to the government to, to provide rights to the people and also 
take them away. The government is the highest authority and assumes unquestioned, absolute control. The other form of tyranny comes from a theocracy as exists today in Iran and Saudi Arabia. In this case, government and God are one and the same. The results are the same as in the communist philosophy. The, 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 the theocratic government determines what is right and what is wrong. The government grants rights to the people and also takes them away. The government and God are one and the same. And it is the highest authority and, and assumes unquestioned, absolute control. This is what Nimrod attempted to establish in ancient Babel. You remember that? This is what, that is what Nebuchadnezzar did uh, establish in Babylon when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in the fiery furnace. And that is what King James I had successfully established in Old England as he was the political leader being the king. But he was also the spiritual leader as, as the head of the church in England. He assumed absolute control. If you disagreed with the king, not only was it heretical, but it was an act of treason. One could be imprisoned, tortured, or put to death. Do you see that? Do you see that where this is, could be going in America? We we have we have side a side right now that if you don't agree with them, they just want to cancel you. It doesn't matter if, if it's all lies or the, that there is no truth in it. If you disagree, they're willing to cancel you. Okay? Okay. It is... Uh, it is it was that that caused a church body in Scrooby, England to risk their lives and leave the only world that they ever knew to board a little ship called the Mayflower and come to the new world. All right? All right, here we're going to get into the principles of government in the new world. The pilgrims of 1620 were soon followed by the great Puritan migration. Our forefathers were free Englishmen. Ultimately, they answered to the king of England, but according to their charters, they were free men able to elect their own governors and legislators, enact their own laws, and tax themselves if they deemed necessary. Where did they go for instruction on the principles of government? Being families with a devout biblical worldview, the Puritans understood that God established three institutions on earth. It was God who established the home. Consequently, they knew that God would have a lot to say about the form and proper function of the home in his divine world. They knew that God established the church. Consequently, as they were not under the authority of the Church of England, they searched the scriptures for instruction on the design and function of their local congregational churches. They also recognized that it was God who established human government. Obviously, God had, would, have, would have much input on the purpose, design, 
and function of a proper human government. The historian John Palfrey wrote in his History of New England, the Puritan searched the Bible, not only for principles and rules, but for mandates. And when he could find none of these, for analogies to guide him in precise arrangements of public administration and in the minutest points of individual conduct. Think, you, you think we've strayed from that over the years? Think we've strayed from that? In fact, pastors were log logically experts in the areas of politics. Politics did not mean Republican or Democrat. The technical definition of the word politics, even in modern dictionaries, is the art of science and government or governing. Logically, since God established civil government, he would have a lot to say about its proper form and function. Since pastors were supposed to be experts on the Word of God, they should also be well-versed in God's design and purpose for proper civil government. After a new legislature or council was elected, a pastor would come to preach a charge and lay out the expectations and responsibilities of the, that elected in what was commonly called an election sermon. Can you imagine what would happen if you went and preached to the legislator today? 90% of them wouldn't even show up. They'd boycott it. They'd refuse to hear it. And Alex Baldwin, in her, in her work in 1928 in the New England clergy and the American Revolution states this, These election sermons discuss the government of the ancient Hebrews and its excellencies. Many were theatrical or theoretical, concerned with the origin and end of government. Some dealt more particularly with their own charters and, and the dearly won rights of the Englishman. Some, with great freedom of speech, gave practical advice to the assembly about well-known evils and desirable laws. The majority discussed in greater or less details the quality and the responsibility of magistrates. Year after year, the same themes were discussed. Often the same phraseology was used. Now and again, there was an election preacher who was exceptionally direct and thorough going in his discussion either of government, of the agitations of the day, or both. These sermons dealt with matters of government. Copies were distributed widely, publicated, where they became textbooks on politics. I guarantee you they're not in our textbooks today. They're not in our textbooks today. But these, these, these pastors got up and warned those people that were elected against leaving biblical principles in government. They got up and told them that God wouldn't honor a tyrant ruler. That it was the people who made the decision. It was the people who they were set to serve, not rule over. Many principles of government that we take for granted were actually biblical truths unique to American government. The fundamental principle that all men are created equal did not come from the Hindu caste, Islam, or from old England. It was a biblical truth emphasized during the Great Awakening that all men are created equal at the foot of the cross. 
The concept of natural law and the monogamous family unit comes from the Bible. Our laws of morality, ownership and rights of private property, a right to a fair trial, no conviction without two or three witnesses, a punishment that fits the crime, all come from the Bible. The Republican form of government comes from the Bible. As Moses was leading the Israelites to Canaan, he was stretched too thin. His, uh, he wound up wearing himself out and was doing disservice to the people. His father-in-law advised him that he needed help. So in Exodus 18.21 tells us, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and a place and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers over hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. Pretty clear groundwork in there for who's supposed to be ruling, isn't it? Establishing a defined and written law, a written rule of law that was entered into the, to by the concept of the people did not originate in Old England. It originated in the Bible where the law of Israel, the Torah, was their constitution that bound even the king as he was only authorized to govern within those defined boundaries. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20 states this, And it shall be, when he setteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of the, this law and these statutes, to do them, that, is, uh, that his heart not be lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment, to the right hand or to the left, to the end that may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel." These principles and many others that we take for granted were biblical truths incorporated into the American civil law. Being free to govern themselves and having a solid, solid biblical worldview, there were three basic principles through which the founders viewed civil government. The Puritans believed in the depravity of human nature. And that the purpose of all government, whether it be self-government, family government, church government, or civil government, was to maintain order and restrain wickedness. That's what government's supposed to do. Restrain wickedness. Is it working? In addition, they believed that since God established civil government, then the purpose of civil government was not to tyrannize or oppress the people but for their good. It was ordained of God and its purpose, like the government of Christ and of God himself, was the good of the people. Pastor Nathaniel Appleton of Boston preached in a public lecture in 1757. Government was instituted by God for the good of mankind. If a ruler acts selfishly or oppressively, he acts quite contrary to the original design of government and contrary to the express will of him from whence all power and all authority are derived. Romans 13, 1-4 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are ordained 
by God. God is not a God of anarchy and chaos. He is a God of justice and order. It was God that created our civil government and what it should look like. Does that mean that every existing government is of his, of his design and of his will? Absolutely not. Consider, as an example, the family. God established the family. It is God's design for man, with his eyes fixed on Jesus, to join together with a woman, not another man, with her eyes fixed on Jesus, both of them's eyes fixed on Jesus, in the sacred union of marriage, to be faithful to one another until death parts them, and to raise their children in the nature or nurture and abdomition of the Lord. Period. Unfortunately, man has a way of making a mess of things, don't we? And we see broken homes every day. This is not a problem with God's design or intent. It's a problem of man's disobedience and self-will. The same holds true in the institution of civil government. God established it. It was his idea. And the purpose, according to Romans 13 that we just read, is to punish evil and protect good. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God and a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Peter repeats the same, same truth in 1 Peter 2, 13-14. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. There's a reoccurring theme, isn't it? Government is for the punishment of evildoers and, and to deal with the wicked. But that's not what we're seeing. That, that, we, we've strayed so far from it. Paul. Paul puts the finishing touches on, this, on the purpose of government in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that, we're, that, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. A lot of honesty going on in our government, isn't it? Do you see, do you see where the road... From, from, from the time that our government was established, how it split, and, and we, haven't, we haven't stayed on the right path? Clearly the will of God for government is to punish the evil and protect the good, that we may live peaceably in all godliness. Government was designed for the good of man. Thomas Jefferson opens our Declaration of Independence with, the, with, with these words. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people 
to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. God granted them. The whole basis upon which this act of separation was justified is the laws of nature and nature's God. Is that simply some poetic phrase from the 18th century author? No. The terms in the Declaration of Independence are actually legal terms defined in Blackstone's com commentaries on the law. Sir William Blackstone was an English jurist who published his four-volume commentaries on English law. This became the cornerstone of American law. Regarding natural law, Blackstone states, man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is entirely a dependent being. And consequently, a man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything. It is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will, not his government's will. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. The doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the holy scriptures. No human laws should be suffered to contradict these. Pretty wise man, isn't he? Natural law included such things as are observable in, na in nature, like the law of gravity or the, the right to defend your property. Try taking a grizzly bear cub away from its mother and you'll quickly learn a thing or two about defending your family and home. But natural law also includes God's moral law, which was contained only in the Holy Scriptures. As Blackstone stated, the biblical worldview of, of our founders believed that when God had spoken, the matter was settled. Man was the only, only free to enact law where God hadn't already spoken. An original member of the U.S. Supreme Court and signer of the Constitution, James Wilson, stated, It should always be remembered that this law, natural or revealed, made for men or for nations, flows from the same divine source. It is the law of God. Human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that law which is divine. Wise men, isn't it? Wise men that founded this country, that set up our nation on biblical principles, that knew, that had conviction, and knew that the supreme governor was God, and that we don't have a right to circumvent what God said. But we see this decline through, our, through the, the history of our nation where now they don't even take into account what God thinks. Most of them probably don't even own a Bible. We've got some that when they get sworn in, they won't even, they won't even swear in on a Bible. Does that tell you what they think of God? Well, here's the, here's the, the putrid part of it. We put them in office. We elected them. Whose fault is it? It's our fault. It's the people's fault. 
It's a heart condition. It's a, it's a completely a spiritual condition. No human laws are of any validity if they violate God's law. Listen to that. No human laws are of any validity if they violate God's law. So for example, what should the speed limit be on Broadway Avenue? Well, there's no place in the Bible that talks about the speed limit on Broadway Avenue. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 tells us what the speed limit should be. Therefore, our civil there, no, nowhere in, in other words, nowhere in the Bible is there that written. Therefore, our civil political body is free to determine that. What is safe and efficient speed limit that, that should be on that, that street? However, what is the definition of marriage? According to the pages of the Bible, it is one, it is one with a man and a woman. One man and one woman. When God has spoken, the matter is settled. And the created has no business or right to overrule the creator. What common sense does this make? However, we have seemingly lost our common sense in this world. Consider the simple wisdom from yesteryear. The Reverend Joseph Alden authored the public school textbook on government and citizenship in 1869. And remember, pastors were experts on civil government according to God's idea. But he authored this textbook. Do laws which restrain a man from doing wrong infringe upon his liberty? They do not. For he has no right to do wrong. We live in a day of black rights, white rights, women's rights, homosexual rights, transgender rights. The truth is that we are given certain unalienable rights from God. But no one has a right to do wrong. What a simple, brilliant logic that has been lost in this modern generation. Along this same line of thought, let me expound upon the term pursuit of happiness as that is a specific unalienable right from God and articulated in our Declaration of Independence. I have heard that the expression used to defend all sorts of perverse and sinful behavior with the defense that they're simply pursuing happiness. That is exactly the opposite of what the term actually means. Let us refer to Blackstone's commentaries on the law. For he, God, has so intimately connected, so inseparably interwoven the laws of eternal justice with the happiness of each individual that the latter cannot be attained but by observing the former. And if the former be punctually obeyed, it cannot but induce the latter. In consequence of which mutual connection of justice and human felicity, happiness, has not perplexed the law of nature with a multitude of abstracted rules and precepts referring merely to the fitness or unfitness of things, as some have vainly surmised, but has graciously reduced the rule of obedience to this one paternal precept, 
that man should pursue his own true and substantial happiness. This is the foundation of what we call ethics or natural law. Basically what he says is if you want to be happy, get in the will of God. We know that to be true, don't we? If you're outside the will of God, you have everything except peace. You have everything except peace. But, but, but human nature and, 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 and officials who are outside the will of God, who are lost, steadily creating things like transgender rights or homosexual rights to try to make those people feel good. Well, I got news for them. They're not going to ever feel like until they get saved. They're not going to ever feel good until they get saved. They can't. God designed us to either be saved or lost, in His will or out of His will. And if you're not in His will and living according to His precepts and His principles, you can't have peace or be happy. It's impossible. We have a God-given right to life. And no government or individual can arbitrarily deprive you of your life. You may forfeit your rights to life if you commit some capital crime, but it can't legally just be taken from you. We have a God-given right to liberty, and no government or individual can arbitrarily deprive you of your liberty. You may forfeit it if you commit some crime that results in your arrest or incarceration, but you can't simply be deprived of your liberty without due process. We also have a right to discern and walk in God's will, enjoying all the blessings that God has for us and in store for us according to His Scripture. This would include our right to own property, buy, sell, work, raise a family, enjoy liberty, and most importantly, the right to worship Him according to the dictates of your heart as revealed in the Holy Scripture and no government an individual can deprive you of that right. There is absolute truth. There's right and wrong. There's a foundation upon which America was built. That is the laws of nature and nature's God. A biblical worldview. Rights come from God, not government. And no one, absolutely no one has the right to do wrong. Third principle. If all men are created equal, then who has the right to rule over another man? Obviously, the answer is no one. If a man lived all by himself, now remember what government, government was not created to rule over. It was to protect. Obviously, the answer is no one. If a man lived all by himself, he would have no need of creating a civil government. Let us refer once again to Sir William Blackstone and the worldview on found our founding fathers for more than about the necessity of civil government. If here's what he said, if men if man were to live in a state of nature unconnected with other individuals, there would be no occasion for any other laws. That the law of nature and the law of God but was formed by society 
is necessary capable of living alone, nor indeed has the courage to do it. In other words, if, you're, if you were out there living by yourself, you would, there would be no reason for you to have any civil government over you. The, on, the, the only laws that you would need or, or would abide by were God's. He will always be our supreme, supreme ruler. In other words, if a man lived alone, then he would have no need for civil law. For example, if I lived on a deserted island all by myself, then I would have no need to put up traffic lights or have speeding uh, signs. I'm the only one living there. However, I could still be subject to God's laws, such as the law of gravity. And I would still be subject to God's, God's law of morality. But free and equal men, when choosing to live in a community or a civil body, must create or constitute a law to govern their interaction and delegate few and defined powers to this civil political body. This was the way pilgrims found found it to be absolutely necessary to draft and sign the Mayflower Compact before disembarking from the Mayflower. In other words, we had, we had, we had to set up some, some, some guidelines, right? But those guidelines were to protect us, not to rule over us, okay? We all know that when we get, to get together as a group of people, we got to set some ground rules, don't we? Because not all of y'all follow the rules. Most of you don't. And some of you get way out there. Pastor John Davenport of Boston in 1669, in his election sermon, he said this, But man is a social creature and, and men being combined in a family society. It is necessary that they be joined in a civil, a civil society through the manner of union in a political body. This power of rulers of the commonwealth is derived from the people's free choice. For the power of the government is originally or originates in the people. That they may measure out so much civil power that they give it out conditionally upon this, upon this of that condition. So as if the condition be violated, they may resume their power of choosing another. He said... It's the right of the people that if, if I put Scott in government and he abuses and he doesn't, he's not responsible to God's word and how he, how he rules or how he governs with people, that, that he abuses that protection of them and tries to rule over them. It's the people's right to remove him and put a godly man in there that respects godly principles to do those things. Alice Baldwin summarized the political thought in her classic work, The New England Clergy and the American Revolution. Here's what she said. Here is the government set up by the people and resting upon their consent, or their consent, magistrates chosen by the majority and strictly limited in power cannot be used against the rights and liberties of people. Removable by, removable by the people if the conditions set by them are violated. Well, let me, let me trigger your, 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 your thoughts for a minute. And you think about what's going on right now and these, and, and, and these people in places of authority and our, our governments locally to nationally. 
What is the backlash for the people trying to remove them? What are they doing? Oh, we're talking about packing the courts so we can't ever, so we can't ever get out of, out of control. We're talking about all sorts of things to, to force them to remain in power, to force themselves to get to remain in a dictatorship. But according to these people, we the people are supposed to be the judge and jury and, and look, at, look at these people who are in authority and measure them up against the principles of the Bible, not of our own inclination, but, but lay their fruits of their work against the principles of the Bible and make a decision, are, are they honoring God's principles? Are they, are they fulfilling their duties according to the will of God and civil government and what he laid out in the Bible? And if they're not, we're supposed to remove them. We're not just supposed to turn a blind eye and say, oh, it's a lost cause. We're not just supposed to accept the vulgar stuff that they want to push down our throat and tell us that we, we're just intolerant. Oh, pastor, you can't say that. That's politically incorrect. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Just about everything I read in the Bible, if it comes out of my mouth, ain't politically correct. But, but that's where we're at. We are at such a turning point in our nation. A tipping point. This is so serious. Somebody, somebody asked me the other day, said, I can't believe that's what you're preaching on for five weeks. Why in the world would you do that? Let me tell you something. This is, this is as important to, to, to Christians right now than anything is. This is so... I can't even, I can't even put it into words. I can't even put it into words. People, people the hate... The hate. I heard somebody the other day talking about, well, that debate, it really didn't do anything for the independents. Let me tell you something about independents. I don't believe there are very many. Or the, the what they call them independents. They call them the, what, what's the ones that they don't know which way they want to go? Any undecideds. Let me tell you something. In our country today, we are so far over here and so far over there, I don't believe there is a middle. You either believe the lies of Satan or you stand for the principles of God and I'm going to tell you something you ain't got to dig through there to choose one to stand for just take abortion that's it forget all the rest of them just take abortion that's it it's all you have to talk about if you believe that God says that you can't murder a baby then, you, then the rest of it don't matter you can only vote one way. Amen. Period. If that don't convince you, talk about homosexuality. The Bible clearly states what it is. Period. End of story. 
God gives us unalienable rights. Man choosing to live in a community, agree to enter into a covenant, charter or constitution, designing the makeup of the political body, we're delegating and defining certain limited responsibilities to this political body. However, the power always rests in the hands of we, the people. If the political body violates its defined and limited responsibility, it is recallable by the ones who created it. Consider the words of Pastor Thomas Hooker. The foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of the people. We have to give them the power, people. Therefore, if we give it to them, we can take it back. Who's in charge? We are. They, wouldn't, they, they would like you to believe otherwise right now, wouldn't they? They do a very good job of it. But we, the people, as set up right now, according to our Constitution, are in charge. We have the ability and the power to change all of this. Consider the words of Pastor Roger Williams. The sovereign, original, and foundation of civil power lies in the people. And it is evident that such governments as are by them erected and established have no power, nor for no longer time, that the civil power or people consenting and agreeing shall be trusted with them. So who maintains the power? We do. It is with this knowledge that we remember that we that the member of the Constitutional Convention did their work in 1787. The colonies had just fought to liberate themselves from tyranny. The last thing they wanted to do was create another tyrant. There was a strong disagreement between the Federalists who favored the Constitution and the anti-Federalists who were fearful of establishing a new federal government that might grow into a tyrant. The Federalist Papers were a series of newspaper articles published in New York arguing on behalf of the ratification of the new Constitution. Federalist 45, that's very, everyone's heard of that. Federalist 45 tried to give calm assurance to the anti-Federalists that the federal government could never grow outside of its boundaries because its responsibilities were limited and clearly defined. Here's an excerpt from it. The powers dedicated delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to the, several, to, several, to the several states will extend to all objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern the lives, liberties, properties of the people and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. The operations of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger, those of state governments in time of peace and security. As the former, periods will, be, will probably bear a small proportion to the latter. 
the state governments will here enjoy another advantage over the federal government. The more adequate, indeed, the federal powers may be rendered to the national defense. To less frequent, uh, the less frequent will be those scenes of danger which might favor their ascendancy over the governments of, a, of particular states. In other words, the states are supposed to have more power than the federal government. Is that the way it is? Is that the way it is? No. Well, if you don't do it this way, we're going to remove your federal funding. Shouldn't be no federal funding. Do you realize the, the government does not have any money? The only money the government has them is what you give them. But they don't spend it that way, do they? They don't spend it that way, and when they run out of it, what are they doing now? We just, we just make more. Oh, we're so backwards. Oh, we're so backwards. The powers delegated to the federal government by the states was clearly articulated and limited. Key, limited. In case there was ever any misunderstanding, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments put exclamation points on who holds what power. Here's, here's number eight, or number nine. The, enumer the, enumer the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be constructed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Number 10. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Doesn't feel that way, does it? Doesn't seem like it's that way, does it? But what would happen if the federal government began to exercise too much power? Who was determined what was excessive? Not the Supreme Court, but we, the people. We were the ones to determine that. And we still are. But, but we've gone to sleep accepting too much power. For generations and generations and generations, they've just, they've just taken a little more and taken a little more and taken a little more until now here's where we are. But as it stands today, we still have the power to take back what was clearly designed to be ours and that was control. Everywhere you read throughout our founding documents, the power is reserved to the people. But the Constitution, it might, might as well be a napkin with some hand scribble written on it right now. But we the people are who's in charge. But what, what would happen if the federal government uh, became... Uh, began to exercise too much power. Who was determined that it was to be excessive? We the people. Consider the, in the Federalist Paper number 33 this, this excerpt. And it is expressly to execute these certain speci uh, specified powers that the sweeping clause, as it has been effectively called, authorizes the national legislature to pass all na necessary and proper laws. But it may be again asked, who is to judge of the necessity and the uh, propriety 
of the laws to be passed for executing the powers of the Union. If the federal government should overpass the just bounds of its authority and make a tyrann uh, tyrannical use of its powers, basically like a tyranny, the people whose creature, who, who, I mean, people whose creature it is, uh, creature it is, must appeal to the standard they have formed and take such measures to redress the injury done to the Constitution as the exigency may suggest and prudence justify. It says, hey, if, if, if the people see these people up here abusing the Constitution and taking it out of context and, and not submitting and conforming to the way it was written and the way it was designed, the people have got to be the one to change it. The people, us, we the people, have got to be the ones to stand up and say, we're not going to stand for that. I want you to understand, we're right on the verge of tyranny. We're right on the verge of tyranny. I'm almost done. Notice that even in the Federalists, like Alexander Hamilton, clearly acknowledged that the federal government was created by and the cre create creature of the sovereign states, and it was up to the people, not the Supreme Court, to determine whether the action by Washington was necessary and proper. Again, consider this thought. The Constitution was an agreement between the sovereign states creating, a limiting, creating and limiting the federal government. Would the founders give sole authority to their new creation to, to define its own powers? Absolutely not. Why do we think that uh, a branch of federal government, like the Supreme Court, will be fair in determining the authority of the federal government? Because they're part of it. Why would we think they wouldn't be biased? In my younger years, I played football. This guy, the, the guy that, Paul Blair, that uh, organized this and, and, and put all this together, uh, and, and you, any of you can go to this website and look at all of these different excerpts and videos. But he, he, was a, he was a football player and, and played in the NFL, actually. Uh, it says, in my younger years, I played football from the Little League through five seasons in the NFL. I never had the ability to call penalties on the opposing team. If I had been given that power, I would assure you that I would have abused it. Isn't that true to all of us? How do we justify appealing to a branch of federal government to reign over us. When you consider Roe versus Wade and Oberfell decisions, we realize an overreaching of federal government and the generality that it is a huge problem. Listen, our, our government wasn't created to be what it is today. It wasn't created to be what it is today. When they founded our government, they founded our government on biblical principles. You had wise men. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you a pastor here in a few weeks, uh, or in, in a couple of weeks on, and he's going to speak on Black Lives Matter. And, and I, there's no way I can do it justice as to what he does. And, and I'm going to show you that sermon and that presentation that he gave us. And and, but. I can't even begin to tell you 
hopefully you're beginning to see at how far this nation has strayed from, from what it was designed to be. It was set up to honor God. It was set up to live and be governed by the principles of the Bible. And just like everything else in human nature, Satan has infiltrated it. Because we know he's the ruler of this world, right? So it's no surprise. But it's not a lost cause. This is not a lost cause. But it is very serious. It is very serious. That we recognize and we realize where we're at. And what our responsibility is. And it's not just to sit by and say, we're not going to stand. It's just too much work. It's... I don't want to argue with those people. And listen, I don't. I, I don't want to argue with them. I, I'm, I'm not planning on arguing with any, any of them. I'm not a good arguer. I reserve my wife for that. <laughs> I have to hold her back sometimes. But we the people are in charge. We the people don't have to accept what our federal government has turned into. We the people don't have to accept where our federal government wants to go. But what we the people have to do is be responsible to God's word. We have to be responsible to the principles of God. And we have to act accordingly. We can't, we can't go down to the local school board election and say, oh, for the most part, David Kelly's a good guy. Yeah, he believes in such and such, which I don't believe with, and it really doesn't line up against God, but he's such a good guy. I'm going to vote for him because I like him. Bull butter. Amen. You can't do that. I'm just telling you, you can't. If you are a child of God, you have to stand for the principles of God. You have to make decisions in your life based on the principles of God. You have to, in your right of voting, vote for the principles of God. Period. Period. You don't have the right to choose otherwise. I know that's hard, but it's just the way it is. Let me sum this up. What have we learned? The purpose of civil government is not to rule over or tyrannize the people, but it's for the good of the people. We have a standard of truth, a foundation, natural law, God's law. No law can contradict that law, God's law. God grants all rights. The purpose of civil government is to ensure those God-given rights. Man, in order to protect his life, liberty, and property, in order to live in civil societies, enters into, an, into a covenant entrusting certain limited powers to the proper authority of, by, and for the people. A man may not give away something that he does not possess. The government, again, does not own anything. It only has what you give it. The government derives its power by the consent of the governed, we the people, and is limited to the powers entrusted to it by we the people, and cannot break the law, not overstep the powers entrusted to it by we the people. 
Therefore, we, the people, need to stand up and be what God has called us to be. The salt and light of the earth. Period. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you laid out very clear in your word what government was supposed to look like. Lord, I just pray that you would stir the hearts of this nation. Stir people, Lord. Open their eyes <coughs> that they may see where we have got off track. Lord, you gave us a reprieve. We're asking for another one. Lord, we're asking for the greatest revival that, that this world has ever known. Lord, that, that the scales be removed and hearts be stirred and that, that the, the salvation of Jesus be poured out. That's what needs to take place. It doesn't matter who we elect. What really needs to happen is that each and every individual that lives in this nation succumb to your sovereignty and recognize your supreme sovereignty over all. Father, I just pray, pray for your blessings on this church. I just pray that you would continue to keep us and build us and teach us and reveal yourself to us that we may be what you're going to have us be going forward. That, that, that we're going to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That we're going to be able to share the gospel with each and everyone that needs it. And Lord, that we're going to be able to comfort one another as only a church family can do. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.